Hey, Kate. Hey, Daniel. Welcome to Hot and Bothered, a podcast on climate politics in the time of coronavirus. We are hosted by Descent Magazine, and our producer is Colin Kinneborough. We are sad to say this is our last episode for this season. We are wrapping up uh, this run to finish our books, become the best versions of ourselves through focus and exercise. And uh, generally, you know, uh, it's, uh, embark on, a, on a, a long journey of self-improvement, but mostly to finish our books. That's right. Yeah. Basically to finish. I mean, I don't want to imply, of course, we wouldn't want to imply that Hot and Bothered isn't a part of our, our best selves. But with a book deadline, um, you know, the book really does sort of take over <laughs> as, a, as a necessity. As uh, every aspect of my life is learning in, <laughs> in the last couple of weeks, yes, books do take over your life, your entire life. Yeah. Um, well, these are books on climate politics. So, um, you know, we're, we're very much, very, very much on brand here. Um, and, you know, I want to just right off the bat send a huge thanks to everyone who's pitched in on Patreon. Uh, they've made the podcast possible over the last three months, supported the production costs, supported our wonderful and and really, really, really great freelance producer, Colin Kinnebra, who is the, you know, the real foundation stone for this entire uh, project. Yeah. And just because, you know, this happened last night, I wanted to give a shout out to folks who uh, hopped on to our Patreon only happy hour. We had a great time. We're joined by our uh, comrade planet compatriots, comrades, Elizabeth Sony and Theoria Frankis, uh, co-authors with Daniel and I of A Planet to Win. So uh, yeah, that, that kind of thing is, you know, what keeps us going. Yeah. And um, so if you like the season, um, please continue to, to rate and review us on iTunes, on your podcast platform of choice. You know, I think we're still in the... Um, sort of the fine wine stage of the podcast where we will continue to, you know, the episodes will just keep getting better over the next few weeks. Like a fine natural wine, maybe an orange wine. I hear those are, those are in fashion now. Yeah. We're basically like an orange wine. That's right. Um, relatively unfiltered, still drinkable, still drinkable very much. Um, tastes like nature. Even. Yes. Um, so yeah, so, you know, rate us, review us, spread the word, um, tweet at us, the hashtag hot bothered climate, or feel free to email us at hot.bothered.climate at gmail.com. Uh, we're ending the season, but we're not, you know, shutting the whole thing down. Um, so yeah, so we wanted to, um, close out the season by just talking over some of the things that have been on our mind. And I think, uh, with something of a look ahead, to the next few months in the context of, you know, the gigantic election that's coming, um, this huge uprising against uh, anti-Black racism and police violence, um, and, you know, the next phase of the Green New Deal movement, essentially. So tons and tons of stuff coming up. Um, Kate, what, what's on your mind right now as you think about the weeks and months ahead? Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> a lot of things. I mean, I think as, as has come up in our last our last couple of shows, uh, there, there, I think it's just more energy and momentum around big ideas and sort of, you know, real subset of shifts and what seems possible uh, than has been the case, you know, I think for most of the pandemic. 
um, if not, you know, in, in recent history, um, more generally, particularly after, you know, the um, unofficial end of the presidential primary season. Um, so I don't know, I, I feel a little bit like everyone and that I, I don't have any good idea of what, um, what the next three, three or four months could look like. It seems like, you know, the big fight for 2021, um, which feels bizarre to think, think that far ahead as of now will be what a recovery looks like. I mean, and, and, you know, parsing that out along a couple of lines, of course, Daniel, you and, and, you know, I've, I've written different pieces about this, um, have been supporters of something like a green stimulus, uh, along with, you know, other guests on the show. Um, but I think what is more obvious than it, than it has been maybe, uh, for the last couple of years that, 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 you know, recovery needs to, um, center racial justice in a way that the recovery to the last recession just didn't. I mean, that's, you know, uh, the sort of very uneven recovery um, in black communities and communities of color um, is a hangover that, that we're still living with from, from the last recession. Um, and I, I think, you know, we don't have a choice but to take all of that on uh, or, or else I don't think we really get any of it. You're absolutely right. The only way forward for the climate agenda is the fusion of decarbonization, adaptation to extreme weather with a social justice agenda, um, really targeting, uh, you know, bringing jobs, economic activity, just sort of generally much, much greater quality of life to communities of color, especially black and indigenous communities, um, working class communities. So I don't know. I think one maybe one sign that we are winning is the bill that was sort of introduced or has come to light in the last week, um, a $1.5 trillion infrastructure proposal from House Democrats, uh, Speaker Pelosi. Um, now, I've had a chance to look over a bit of the bill, not the whole thing, uh, $1.5 trillion, and it's, the PDFs are very long. Um, but it's, you know, it's interesting. There is a lot of money for housing. There's $70 billion for public housing uh, retrofits, which is um, great. There's money for uh, zero emissions uh, postal fleet, USPS fleet, which is great. Um, there's undoubtedly some stuff that's not great. And you know, one thing that struck me in the sort of back and forth that we've already had about it is the Republicans have already accused us of being, uh, you know, a Green New Deal wish list, which is the Republicans' favorite insults for things. Um, notwithstanding the fact that the Green New Deal actually pulls really well in swing districts, but Pete DeFazio, who um, is the head of the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee in the House. He said, you know, oh, the Republicans are accusing this of being Green New Deal 2.0. And then he says, this is the application of the principles of the Green New Deal. So that's interesting to me. Like there is not, you don't get at least in that, you know, quote from a, a House member from Oregon, you know, running transportation is, is not running away from the Green New Deal like you might have expected. And maybe there is a sense of uh, Democrats feeling pressure to sort of take a stand and to actually put green jobs um, in the window. Uh, in the next months of politicking. Yeah, I I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm <laughs> just feeling more more cynical about it. I mean, I think this is certainly better than most all of what we've seen from sort of establishment democrat types uh trying to write climate legislation. Um I mean, you know, 100 billion dollars for broadband, uh all the things you mentioned, green postal service. That's 
good. I mean, I, I guess, um, you know, I, I, I have not been sort of deeply immersed in the conversation around this bill, but my sense is that this is in, in some sense a, a messaging bill and not that those are unimportant, but I guess if maybe this is the best we can hope for from kind of what uh, congressional leadership looks like right now. And so on that front, you know, it's, it's good. Uh, I think the thing I would be worry about is that Democrats will present this sort of, you know, decent thing that does genuinely reflect, I think, the ways in which the climate conversation has changed largely, you know, as a result of uh, grassroots organizing and, and um, you know, the, the people like Alexander Ocasio-Cortez pushing a more aggressive agenda. Um, but, you know, I, I would be worried that, that Nancy Pelosi will present this and then uh, trade in, as Democrats are wont to do, some major giveaway to the fossil fuel industry or, you know, some some polluting industry um, in exchange for a, a much you know weaker version of what's of what's there now. So that's that's a very cynical take on this. I do think it represents a lot of uh, certainly a lot of progress, but I am uh, just forever weary and, and don't like to claim these victories, I guess. <laughs> um, I think that is the right approach. Um, we should be very, very wary. Um, you know, I guess to, to your point, um, the Democrats in the house have some ideas about climate investment that are not horrible, right? I mean, this is one manifestation of it. It's a mixed bill and I'm not giving it the seal of approval, bills, new highways, but you had something like called the, something called the clean act or something like that. Um, from the energy committee a few months ago, uh, that had some interesting stuff in it. It had a lot of money for retrofitting schools, um, which is something I'm very excited about. And, and a few of us are talking about a Green New Deal for schools these days. So, yeah, I think to your point, Kate, there, the question is, um, you know, are we seeing just like t- tofu for the environmental base or are we potentially seeing the outcome of the compromise? Like, I think that if this bill as it is broadly speaking, one and a half trillion with a lot of money for green initiatives, were the ultimate compromise between like on the one hand, a full Green New Deal, and on the other hand, um, something far worse. If this were the ultimate compromise to be passed like next February, that would not be great, but it wouldn't be the absolute end of the world. Um, But I think what you're pointing to is that this might, this is another way to think about this is this could be the replacement of the Green New Deal as the kind of left edge. And then down the road, the compromise or something you know, far worse. So I don't know. I mean, short of money actually like landing in communities, it's hard to tell when you're in the discourse and when you're in political action. Yeah, I think it's all like you said very well. I think it's all a little murky until like something's actually introduced and it seems like it's going to pass. I mean, uh, you know, the most likely outcome for this bill is that it dies in the Senate. Uh, and like a crazy optimistic world uh, in the next year. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it does sort of preview what uh, what we can expect from 2021 and maybe even the better end of what we can expect from 2021. So I guess, you know, sticks out to me. There's not um, any talk of carbon pricing or at least the coverage I've seen hasn't really included anything about pay fors, which uh, is positive. I, I would say, um, and that, you know, I think that might be the biggest, uh, 
biggest reason to be optimistic if, if that doesn't, you know, end up coming out. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think the word co-optation gets used a little too often. And I think in many ways we really want some, something that would be called co-optation, uh, in, in left politics, right? I mean, you want more and more people in increasing positions of power to take up the, the things that you are saying. That's I think, just a, a sort of principle of politics, but, um, you know, I don't think anybody's going to stop fighting for for a better a better climate bill, and and I think what Sunrise, you know, taking the lead in some sense from from folks in the global south who've been saying this for years, and folks in, in uh, communities on the front lines of climate change, uh, is that this has to be judged against the science, right? The threshold for what constitutes good climate policy, I think, continues to be: is this going to get us to? Uh, as close to 1.5 degrees of warming as possible. And, uh, you know, I think this is better in, in many respects, but I don't think, you know, it's it's what we want. And I don't think it's a reason to say, great job, you know, Democrats, you've really changed your act. Good work. Yeah. I, for the record. Which I don't think anybody said that is actually saying. Yeah. <laughs> You're certainly not saying that. But yeah, you know, I, I think what you say about climate policy has to meet the demands of the science. And that's right. I would maybe maybe I could introduce one like hair split here. Maybe it's not a hair split. I don't know. So I think it, we have to cut emissions roughly in half by 2030 to keep warming in the range of one and a half degrees Celsius overall, which is the goal. Um, and the the targets are a little more generous if we're getting under two degrees Celsius, something in the order of a quarter of emissions globally by 2030. Of course, the United States is historically the largest emitter. Uh, we've emitted more carbon than any other uh, country in the history of the world. So it should be doing far more than um, that 25% and really far more than the, the 50%. Um, but I do think it's true with climate policies that there's a ratcheting, which is okay. In other words, you know, the House or the, the government could pass a bill in 2021 that isn't as, as fast as we want. But as we argued in A Planet to Win, you can always pass more aggressive legislation later once you build up wins. On the flip side, I think that when you look at the police murder um, of George Floyd, the police murders of countless other black uh, men and women and, and many indigenous people and other people of color, we need really immediate action. And so obviously there are a ton of demands from the black uprising and the abolition movement. One of them is to divest from police, divest from the entire carceral state, ultimately abolishing it, um, and then investing um, those resources and, and you know actually even more resources um, into programs that will bring, you know, wealth and jobs and just a higher quality of life to to black and indigenous and other communities of color. So when you come to these brutal inequalities of, of race and of class, um, and in particular inequalities that, that harm black and indigenous folks, we can't have that same kind of incremental approach, I think. I think we need really, really immediate uh, solutions. And so just very quickly, you know, I, as we've talked about, and I talk about all the time, you know, was involved in the Green New Deal for Public Housing Act. And I think something about that is worth mentioning. So the, the idea of the Green New Deal for Public Housing Act is that if you invest directly in public housing uh, retrofits, not only do you have all these incredible benefits for the residents of that housing, you know, cut asthma rates in, in New York, we estimate uh, public housing by, by up to a third, um, but it's also a way of creating jobs directly for the folks who live in that housing and for other low-income workers in the neighborhoods. And I think that is, in some ways, a model of what it looks like to do a green jobs program that will help black and brown communities. Because you're not counting on a whole series of intermediaries 
via market mechanisms and nudges and incentives to private firms or entrepreneur programs. But you're simply saying, we're putting out contracts where you have to hire through, like, ideally a union apprenticeship program um, to folks who literally live in these communities that need the most help. You have to hire them to do the work and they will benefit first. Um, and insofar as you're hiring, let's say, small businesses to do work, that priority goes to businesses owned by the residents of public housing. And, and you know, ideally, and, and the bill talks about this, worker cooperatives. So this, this um, House bill has $70 billion for the public housing um, capital fund, which would go into repairs and could be administered exactly as the Green Deal for Public Housing Act um, suggests. And I think that to maybe push us slightly forward, that also gets to a transition I think that we're starting to see. And I'm curious, Kate, how far you see it going away from a kind of market mechanism climate policy, you know, from Democrats toward a more like direct industrial policy style, direct public investment model of economic change. And I'm saying all this and trying to wrap all these points together probably very inelegantly to simply say that I think that one undersold benefit of the direct investment, direct industrial policy approach is that you can actually, um, when you do that, you can do a lot better in terms of getting jobs for um, black people who need those jobs or getting jobs into indigenous communities or getting, uh, you know, like wealth and economic activity and prosperity into communities of color that have been um, left behind. So I think that, just to sum up, I think that there is some progress. And as we leave behind the carbon taxes and get into the investment, we are actually much closer to realizing our kind of intersectional goals than we would have been, say, two, three, four years ago. Yeah, I think I think that's totally right. I mean, it's it's like I said before, it, it shows a lot of progress that Democrats are even talking about climate in terms of infrastructure, not in terms of uh, a carbon price or something like that. I want to come back to sort of what you said about ratcheting up, which, uh, yeah, we, we mentioned in, in, in A Planet to Win. I think the key of ratcheting up and this idea that there's this, this sort of virtuous cycle of policy where you pass something, you can pass something else later. I don't think that happens, as we saw in 2009 with maximum market. I don't think that happens if the initial policy doesn't deliver real benefits to people, real tangible benefits <laughs> that people, you know, actually see in their in their day-to-day lives. And and I think, you know, something like the Green New Deal for public housing and and you know, hopefully the 70 million dollars for public housing that this bill includes, I mean, would do that would would be tangible. I mean, I think <laughs> Democrats have really gotten away from the idea that they can um, deliver real real benefits to people's lives. But I also think this gets uh, a little bit over complicated in the way climate wonks can talk about can talk about what what climate policy can do. I mean, there's this big conversation that I'm sure you're uh, aware <laughs> aware of, Daniel. That you know we can. Uh, we can do climate policy and we can do social justice policy at the same time, you know, and that, that will make it more popular. Um, But I think that I I find that framing a little bit problematic and that it still imagines policies for racial and economic justice as some sort of like add on to the real climate policy, to the thing that's actually going to bring down emissions. And that, you know, there's this sort of political machination that people make that if you make it, economically just, if you make it racially just, that will make it more popular and that will increase the sort of coalition you have to move forward with it. Which I think there's there's an element of truth to that, but I think it also ignores like what is so clear from reading the Green New Deal for public housing, which is that these are the same, right? I mean, the policies that are going to deliver emissions results are egalitarian policies. <laughs> I just think that's so 
clear that that you know we don't uh, there there is no sort of climate policy in a vacuum, and it will have a distributional effect because all policy has a distributional effect. And and I get frustrated when I see these talked about as as entirely separate things that we have sort of have to you know do a puzzle to to figure out how to fit together when there are just so many policies that that are um, clear intersections of this. And to talk about something that um, you know does not come up in this in this infrastructure bill, but I think, you know, really fits in this category is, is the idea of a federal jobs guarantee, right? I mean, we are entering into what could be, you know, the worst recession in any of our lifetimes. Um, certainly the the worst that most people living remember, maybe worse than the Great Depression. There are millions of people out of work. I mean, unemployment rates in some parts of the country are topping 40%. I mean, this is economic chaos, right? People need jobs. People need an income, uh, and a federal job guarantee is a way to do that, and it has to be green, right? It's insane to imagine that you would do that kind of program that you would put people back to work in a way that isn't uh, doing the things we need for the climate. Any you know number of jobs and just getting people out of out of carbon intensive sectors, um, and that is <laughs> you know the full employment and and a federal job guarantee itself has been a demand of, of Black freedom struggles for. A long time uh, for you know precisely the kind of distributional impact it would it would have because the private sector and private job markets uh, discriminate so heavily against people of color against black folks in particular um, and that having the the government be the employer of last resort it has this sort of egalitarian effect to it that that it, you know you just don't get and so I think we can respond to sort of immediate suffering we can move to correct uh, historic injustice in a way that does not have to be um, separate from climate policy. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, not to put too fine a point on it or, or to make explicit a couple of things that are implicit. I mean, first of all, the point, you know, one of the most important points of this intersection is not just public opinion, which is great, but is also the fusion of, of coalitions, right? So, you know, when nurses understand that care work is low carbon work is the sector of the economy we want to grow both to live well and to decarbonize um, by shifting, you know, away from end tables and towards taking care of each other. Um, that's not just like a nice bullet point on a PDF. And it's not just uh, a, a couple points uh, in polling, but it is, you know, moving a substantial chunk of the left political infrastructure into the climate movement. Um, and that is really significant. And it's the same with, you know, with housing, right? You have a housing movement in this country, which is non-trivial and which is often successful in fighting against things like gentrification. And when you have those movements of people who are like fighting really hard just for their everyday survival, and then they take up climate as one of their issues, that really grows the base for um, climate action, just a political base, because you can't get anything done without a coalition um, in politics or even what we'd call in, in Gramscian terms, like a, a hegemonic block. And I, you know, I think the other thing you said, Kate, is so right, is this idea of like the deep intersection of these issues. And it's not just adding them on, right? So to quote our old friend Karl Marx from the Grundrisse, one of his great texts, you know, production and consumption are just different ends of the same process. Um, and of course, neoclassical economists say the same thing. And so a lot of climate wonks are really energy wonks. And they think that like real climate policy is like the hard engineering stuff of replacing fossil fuels with renewable energy. But we also use twice as much energy per capita in the US as even Europeans who are not exactly like energy misers. And so we have to transform how we consume energy. And that's why it's important that housing is responsible for like the sixth of emissions or that auto transport is responsible for a sixth of emissions. So we really have to change the whole arrangements 
of, of social life in addition to transforming technologies. Um, and as you were just getting at, Kate, that then involves a whole other series of actors, a whole other series of social issues. You know, green guarantee, jobs guarantee jobs could be an ecological restoration. But um, I've argued, and I think you've argued this as well, you know, the, those jobs should also have lower, probably lower working hours. Um, and, you know, through the public sector, we can lead a transformation of work from working 100 hours a week, 80 hours a week to working more like 30 hours a week, but with all the benefits and with time off um, and essentially modeling what work in a low carbon world should should look like. So I'm um, all in for this intersectional approach. And um, yeah, I guess the last point I would just make, I think, before we move on is like, we're talking about things that Democrats are doing all right. But I think, you know, to, to say explicitly what I think has been implicit, this is an index or a, a reflection of the power of, of our movements, right? It's like when Sunrise and AOC sit in, in in Pelosi's office in 2017 with a jobs forward agenda, and then, sun, you know, Sunrise stands up and supports the Green New Deal for public housing, even though probably very few people enter at Sunrise thinking about public housing. Um, and you just see, I think, more broadly in the climate movement, a turn and an embrace of the social justice imperative. That is then reflected in better legislative um, language and discourse, but it's really coming from uh, a huge upsurge of organizing in the base. And I think, I don't know if you would say the same, Kate, but I think the climate movement um, overall is probably far more intersectional than it was even just three or four years ago. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think I want to be a little bit more circumspect about um, about the sort of state of climate policy re- reflecting the strength of the movement, right? Because I think the strength of the movement is also reflected in the strength of the people who the movement elects. And we wouldn't probably be talking about the Green New Deal if uh, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez was not in Congress, uh, which, you know, was, was a movement-led victory. Um, but, you know, I, I think that is important not to lose sight of, particularly, you know, as I think people are feeling um, probably a bit down on uh, on electoral politics after, on the left after Bernie Sanders uh, dropped out of the out of the primary. I mean, today is, is is the primary day in New York. I very happily voted for for Bernie Sanders, um, but you know, there's a potential to send uh, a, a kind of new round of energy uh, to, um, to to Congress. I mean, Jamal Bowman uh, is running on a Green New Deal uh, here here in the Bronx and Westchester, uh, and I think that is is just a key part of the equation because there you know just have to be people to to um, to voice and and bring what movements are saying to, to the halls of power and, and, you know, not be, not be sort of stuck outside of the way that the left was for, for such a long time. Um, so I think that's, I mean, that's, that's sort of a hopeful, hopeful thing is I think there is real energy and there is real attention to that. And, and just to, um, having a more organic and, you know, dare I say, dialectical relationship between, uh, people in, 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 in power and, and, you know, movements who, um, put them there and to they're accountable to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, I think it's interesting, like we had on early in this season, uh, Waleed Shahid of Justice Democrats, and the, the entire premise of this organization is that, you know, primarying um, Democrats is an essential strategy for achieving progressive change, because essentially what you're doing is you're taking out people who are sitting in these seats uh, and serving corporate interests and replacing them with folks who are accountable to movements. I mean, you're not going to successfully primary an incumbent in this country without massive social movement support. Um, and then we come, you know, weeks later talking to Patrick Houston, who's organizes with this incredible um, black and brown led group, New York Communities for Change in New York. And what does he say uh, in an interview with us? He's like, we love to primary. You know, that's one of the ways that they built a, like a, 
an enormous supermajority in city council, almost unanimous um, support for a very aggressive low carbon buildings bill, uh, viciously opposed by the Real Estate Board of New York. Um, and, you know, NYCC and its allies, uh, New York Communities for Change and its allies, got this bill passed because, the, uh, you know, underneath it is a threat to primary the hell out of anybody who is opposing them, you know. Um, and, and, you know, Patrick told the story of, uh, you know, being on the verge of a protest outside the House of the City Council Speaker, Corey Johnson, who wants to run for mayor. And, you know, Johnson, the night of the, you know, the, the, the eve of this giant protest that would have humiliated him, um, on his way to his own primary campaign, of course, you know, switches sides and, and, and comes on board. So I think you're, as, you're absolutely right. And I'll just plug quickly my uh, wonderful friend and mentor, Jean-Paul Baiocchi's book, uh, We the Sovereign, um, which came out a few years ago, and is all about this, like you were saying, Kate, dialectical relationship between movements and parties um, in Latin America and the lessons that could teach a resurgent U.S. left, which, as you're saying, I think has, has really um, matured. And one of the ways it has is, is by taking on the formal political um, kind of realm, you know, not this is not the politics of Occupy, but now getting into the halls of power, but electing folks who are very intensely accountable to the movements that put them in. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right. And just a last last point in that is that, you know, I think back to our interview with Raj Patel uh, talking about the strikes in the New Deal, and it was, you know, the, the combination of just real pressure, shutting down a lot of stuff, uh, in in the early days of the New Deal itself, um, that got us the second New Deal, which you know created some of the most sort of radical programs of that um, that that of that period. Um, and so I think you know, as we've said before, this isn't a kind of one shot one shot deal. Uh, but but I think you know paying attention to how how we build on 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 victories and, and recover from losses is is just so important. I want to reflect just briefly, like we, I think, have come a long way in all this as we've been talking about. And and again, I just think the like recurrent theme of political economy to me is so powerful. Like, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm older than you, Kate. Um, when I was an undergrad in the early 2000s, I remember someone from this organization in Halifax, you know, I'm, I'm Canadian, came down to, to Montreal and led a seminar on um, debt. Uh, like how basically countries in the global south were indebted and basically the political economy of global south indebtedness um, as we were all in the kind of alter globalization movement at the time. And to me, it was just mind blowing. Like, you know, me at age like 19 really thought the left meant that you cared more about social issues than economic issues. You know, that's like how I was kind of raised. And the idea of a left-wing economist was just mind-blowing, you know, like that there had been anybody since Marx who was left-wing economist just completely like shattered my concept of the you know, of the world. And, you know, I actually studied um, development economics uh, in, in undergrad and our, our kind of most left-wing development economics teacher, his basic message to us was like development economics doesn't care enough about people's, you know, feelings and about their like social values, which is a fine point and is not wrong, but is very, very far from the notion that there is actually a whole alternative political economic framework from the left. And now here we are and we're, ta- you know, we had Jason Perez on from Acre, Action Center on Race and the Economy, talking about democratizing the Federal Reserve Bank. Um, as you were saying, Kate, and this brought this to my mind, Raj Patel talking about the need to take on questions of finance and how in every sort of major phase of struggle in the U.S. left, there have been not just strikes, but there's been like a real attention to the financial system. Um, and, and so I think, and as we head into this next election, you know, pushing Biden for a Green New Deal, thinking about even what police abolition looks like, the amount of attention to political economy in the left is so much greater than where it was 10 and certainly 20 years ago. Um, I think that too is kind of an index of, 
how much the world has changed. And, you know, even though we didn't get Bernie elected um, as the candidate for, for president, the kind of underlying infrastructure, like intellectual and organizational of our um, movements has grown, you know, so much. That was a real, that was a real grandpa Daniel moment there, but uh, you know. Back in my day. <laughs> my moth eating cardigan is, is, you know, resting on my shoulders right now. <laughs> Uh, you're, you're what, 10 years older than me? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, 10 years. 10 okay. years something like yeah. yeah, I mean, just so readers are, are clear. Um, <laughs> I believe that we, tra- we call them listeners now, Kate. This is an audiovisual medium. <laughs> but, um. Who's older than who? <laughs> <on this show? laughs> um, our dear podcast audience. Um, yeah, no, I think, I think it's great. Um, I, I think it's really good. I mean, uh, speaking of finance, I uh, have spent most of this morning, um, you know, reading about about uh, BlackRock for another story I'm working on, which is just uh, just eating up, you know, various shares, certainly, but but parts of the world and in 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 one way or another. Um, and that's you know a, a new thing since 2008. Uh, basically, just this, this role of asset managers. And I don't I don't actually want to spend that much time um, talking about that in part because there are people who are much better equipped to talk about that than I am. Um, but I think it just makes study to be very nimble. Things are moving very quickly uh, where we are. And I think having a nice basis in political economy uh, is, is, is a helpful thing for our movements to have to not, you know, get, get stuck fighting, a, fighting an enemy that, that, you know, no, no longer exists. That's great. You know, Larry Fink, who's the CEO of BlackRock, if I'm, if I got that right, he is being considered by the Biden administration, you know, by the Biden campaign team as a possible Treasury Secretary. It is, it is helpful to remember that amidst all of our celebrations of how far we've come, we are on the verge of putting um, a truly horrible kind of globe-crunching financier uh, at the head of the U.S. economy. Um, you know, uh, at least in the government end. Um, so we're not that we, you know, we haven't won yet. <laughs> we definitely haven't won yet. Yeah. But, but even, even on that note, I mean, I, I think the attention that's being paid to the personnel in the transition is, is, is a sort of hopeful, hopeful thing. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I think even from four years ago, right. When, Democrats who supported Sanders got a little bit siloed in this conversation about the Democratic platform, which is this mostly symbolic document. Um, now we're saying, you know, you can't appoint Goldman Sachs or you can't appoint BlackRock uh, to to cabinet positions uh, and and expect you know anyone to believe you that you are going to be good on climate because the the history just just doesn't you know bear bear that out. And so there there just is a lot of um, you know, I think very smart thinking about um, about what it means to to sort of contest for power, even when you know the the, the circumstances are not ideal for the left, which a, a Biden administration certainly is not. We we stand Reed Hunt. You read his book, A Crisis Wasted. If you haven't heard this from us before, read A Crisis Wasted. Reed Hunt, Simon and Schuster um, came out just a few years ago. Incredible book on the Obama transition, all the ways that the choices that Obama made to surround himself with neoliberal holdovers from the Clinton era completely undermined um, even the already pretty slim chances of 
big change uh, then. And I just point this out. Don't read interviews with Reed Hunt. Don't read his current op-eds. D- don't bother. I mean, they're, I guess they're okay. Like, just read the book. I mean, the book is worth its weight in gold. And the rest, I mean, I don't really know what to say. I mean, he is a power player and insider, and I think wants to stay that way. But in the book, he just kind of unloaded, and that's there's no substitute for it. Um, don't don't tell me that you just read his his New York Times op-ed. Don't tell me you listen to the podcast. You just got to read the book, um, and the first half of it in particular is just the 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 deep cut for all those Reed Hunt fans out there. <laughs> <laughs> really discerning between his various works. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's like professor on the podcast, you know, hashtag read the book, like, um, listen to our podcast. I mean, you know, we're, we're not diluting our, ourselves here. Um, I endorse the book too. It's a great book. It is a great book. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think there are a couple other things that we might maybe just, just touch on Kate, um, before we wrap. I mean, I, I think one of them is this idea that this is a decade of the Green New Deal and I, you know, I'd love to say a bit more about that. But I think the other, we just want to make sure we, we say a few words about, we've talked a bit about um, the, the need to respond to this uprising by bringing economic development uh, and jobs and opportunities uh, and health and just essentially a far greater um, quality of life. Um, you know, we need to put resources in the hands of black and indigenous and other people of color to, to create that in their communities. But we do also have to really um, defund the police. And I think that, you know, the abolitionist Green New Deal conversation has to include, of course, the investment piece, but I think also the divestment piece and has definitely challenged me to really think more deeply about just how much social wealth goes into all these different forms of repression, you know, from like keeping track of all our phone calls and messages to, of course, the beat cops on the street to, um, you know, the army. But like, I think the abolition idea challenges us to think very, very deeply about how we use our resources to punish people and how important that is to the capitalist order. Um, and, you know, I think that's a challenge that's been for me really productive. And I can't claim that a year ago I was thinking anywhere nearly as, as deeply about this as I think that I, I need to be. And so it's, you know, it's not, you can't just flip a switch and know 20 times more, but um, I don't know. I think the green new deal will have, will, will, that movement will, will have to take some time to really absorb um the impact of the critiques and the lessons and the um, the kind of mobilizations that we're seeing right now. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think there's just a lot of, uh, there's a lot of common ground. I mean, as we talked to Jason about last week, there are going to be these big battles over budgets at the, at the city and, and state level in, in the months and in years to come. And I think there is a potentially really exciting coalition to be made between, you know, the folks who've been leading demonstrations in the last couple of weeks and folks who are, you know, have traditionally worked for, uh, for climate policy um, to, you know, contest over what the public sphere should look like. What is it that public budgets are for? Certainly, uh, you know, there are better uses for the tens of millions of dollars that cities spend on their police departments uh, than, uh, than, than, than the police, uh, than, you know, criminalizing people and, and locking people up. I think we also need to get into this surveillance state issue. Um, you know, the, we talked briefly about this in the Planet to Win, but there's like a whole world of predictive algorithms that are used in policing and in the justice system, which, are, which is very horrible and ingrains racial bias, as is increasingly well known. But when we get into things like smart grids, 
we are again confronting these like um, often big private entities, whether it's your like Nest thermostat in the home or their you know other kind of software packages that utilities are using, where the kind of essential actions to increase energy efficiency blend right into forms of kind of surveillance and data capture that are super worrying. And I think that is an area where the, the climate movement is ultimately going to have to to move and to really think about breaking apart the kind of like good al- algorithmic world of essentially efficiencies that keep precious metals in the ground and keep, you know, communities whole and keep the atmosphere clean and a very nefarious world of algorithmic kind of surveillance and ensnarement, which is, which is awful, which Edward Snowden, among others, caught, brought our attention to. And in many ways, the Obama administration has done a huge disservice, I think, um, in terms of basically legitimating the kinds of surveillance state that all good liberals hated under Bush, but in a, in a sense, I think, made their peace with under Obama, who didn't really change much of that at all. Yeah, no, I think I think it's huge. I mean, and I think it specifically makes questions of ownership really important um, in a way that they are otherwise, but but the, the just sheer amount of data that a smart grid has to collect um, I mean, really brings into stark relief, like the idea that you don't want your investor owned utility um, to package off the data about when you uh, cook breakfast in the morning to Facebook um, and, you know, or to local police departments who can, you know, requisition that data. Um, yeah, this is not my area of expertise necessarily, but but I just think, you know, there there is a, a little bit of inadequate attention being paid um, to, to just who controls that information um, and, and, you know, who can who can profit off it. And I think, you know, a, a publicly owned electric utility, which, you know, we argue for in a planet to win does not solve all of those problems. It doesn't solve the problem of decarbonization on its own, certainly, but I think, you know, does provide a layer of uh, democratic accountability that may not exist if, you know, we have a million different solar companies uh, providing third-party rooftop solar panels to a million different houses with with no respect to uh, how much they cost or, you know, who, who has access to that. The other thing I would bring up, and, and I don't want to take us, you know, too far afield from this if we don't want to, um, it's just that I mean the the carceral infrastructure very broadly is so bound up in in the climate fight. I mean the fact that FEMA, our national disaster response agency, is is housed within DHS and sort of governed by um, Department of Homeland Security. Yes, the Department of Homeland Security. Um, and it's governed by this insane set of rules that was written uh, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 um, in this crazy paranoid state. Uh, and that is, that is in, in, in you know, very real terms, just what governs disaster response uh, down to, you know, local offices of, of emergency management. Uh, and I was, you know, I was just writing something on this for for my book and, and uh, learned sort of horrifyingly that uh, New Jersey, where I'm from and where I've, I've done a little bit of reporting, um, is one of two states in the union where uh, emergency management is uh, under the jurisdiction of the state police. Um, the other one is Michigan. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> I think having spent just, you know, a little bit of time in, in some of those, those 
spaces on, 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 on recording projects, it, it's, it's sort of a scary, just scary to consider not changing up the carceral system as climate impacts become uh, more apparent, more destructive uh, in, in the decades to come. And I think, you know, it just speaks to how, how big this transition needs to be. And it's not, it, it cannot be just about energy. I mean, this, this really is a question of, you know, who gets to live and, and live well in, in the 21st century. And, and, and the carceral system is a huge part of that if, if we're going to have sort of cascading climate impacts. Absolutely. And, you know, while we're on like um, read a book uh, phase, you know, two great sociologists wrote an incredible book called Crisis Cities, Disaster and Redevelopment in New York and New Orleans, which really gets into some of these intersections if you want a deep cut. And I'm really looking forward to my friend Andy Horowitz's book, Katrina, a History, 1915 to 2015, which is out um, this July. And Andy is brilliant um, uh, historian and knows everything about what's happened with Katrina, it's long prehistory and what's going on in New Orleans now. That's out um, in a couple of weeks, Katrina history. But yeah, I want to also point out um, for our listeners that note that Kate cooks breakfast. You know, many of us um, simply I don't, eat it. actually. I um, but, no, too. look, hey, there's no shame. You know, you're, you know, you're stuck at home. You're writing all the time. Like, Let the record show I had a smoothie for breakfast today. <laughs> <laughs> I, get, I, yeah. did, I guess it did involve turning on my, my magic bullet, so... You know, you blended marker, breakfast. We'll, we'll register that <laughs> just as well. Yeah, what are we going to call magic bullets under eco-socialism? Obviously, we won't be re- referring to ammunition. Oh, nationalize it. Nationalize magic bullet. But we need a, it, it'll be called like magic, like lo- love oval or something. I don't know. What's the... Transformation station. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, you know, so our last, you know, I think just last comment I want to make, we don't have to dive into this in, in great depth, obviously, we, we talk about this on occasion, but, you know, look, it, these are tough times. Um, uh, Biden was not our choice, uh, f- you know, for the presidential candidate, obviously. Um, I really, one of the ways that I get myself out of bed in the morning, I have a, a few strategies and none of them is particularly successful, but I think the biggest one is like thinking always about the decade of the 2020s. This is the decade of the Green New Deal. And politically, like you were saying, Kate, there's this primaries now. You know, today we're taping on a Tuesday. We'll come out in a couple of days. Um, primaries in New York. We've won some big primaries, uh, you know, in Philadelphia, where, where I live, um, and, and other places. Um, but, you know, there's going to be more primaries. Like every single year, basically, there are. Um, and there's every year is a chance for more movements and more mobilization. And if you look at the uprising against police violence and, and anti-blackness, none of us were predicting this um, just a few weeks ago. Obviously, nobody predicted the COVID crisis. Um and the possibilities that that's raised for kind of rebooting the economy on on green terms. So I don't know. I think that day by day, politics can feel good or bad and often bad. But I think, again, with that longer term perspective and looking at the decade ahead and you know how many years are left in it, 10, 10 whole years, um, we're, you know, we're in a decent position. And I, you know, I, I try to think like 2023, that's going to be a big presidential primary year. We can plan for that, you know, um, and, and there are others. So I don't know. I guess... Kate, I'm curious how you think about this, but to me, I feel like we're we're more or less on track for a decade of the Green New Deal. Could be better, but could be a lot worse. And that that to me still feels like the decisive time frame. I never want to pin anything on just a two or four or even twelve month window because that just seems too risky. Um, but ten years does seem about right. If by the end of the decade we're still like coming up with reasons to be optimistic when everything is terrible, then I don't know. I might just start a grape farm. Why great? I guess that's a vineyard. 
I don't, I don't know. That just literally came into my head. That seems like a very, that seems like a very embarrassed way to say that I'm going to drink a lot more wine. It <laughs> implies <laughs> land ownership and, and like drinking wine, which is a, seems like a different thing. Community uh, grape garden. Community grape garden. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I also think I would be overwhelmed uh, with despair if I thought everything we needed to happen had to happen in the next six months to a year and all of the signs had to point in our direction uh as soon as possible i mean i as we were talking about you know earlier in this conversation uh, even thinking about where we were four years ago uh, we're in a much better place and <laughs> you know not not in the world i think but in terms of i think the strength of the strength of movements, just level of sophistication in terms of how think about people think about politics, the kinds of climate policy we're talking about. I think you know, if if that kind of scale change is possible in the next four years, I think we're we're in very we're in a very good place. I don't think it happens automatically, but um, I think we're setting up. And I think you know the the thing that gives me uh, maybe some ironic hope um, is that the neoliberal project is just an empty vessel at this point right yes I mean, no one believes wanted, in it no no one no one is is out there you know talking about the the wonder of markets and uh the the you know how great means testing is and any of this stuff i mean there there are maybe some some really half-hearted uh advocates for that idea and like the american enterprise institute or something but as a political project, it's kind of empty. And I think the the fact that Biden is the nominee, the, the sort of person the establishment was forced to, forced to sort of compromise on uh, and is is a literal dinosaur. I mean, I hope he gets elected, of course, is is uh, is a dinosaur. Um, well, and, and, as someone who grew up loving dinosaurs, this is <laughs> real. That's unfair to dinosaurs, I think. <laughs> um but no, nobody really believes in this shit anymore. And uh there there's there are just not there are not, you know, young, enterprising neoliberal thinkers out there. I don't think that means everything is like going our way. It's certainly- Wait, are you saying that Matt Iglesias is not young, that he's not enterprising, or that he's not neoliberal, or that he's not a thinker? <laughs> I think the the latter is probably the most uh <laughs> the most salient, um, but but yeah, I mean, and and even you know, okay, we won't talk about medical issues on on the show in our last couple minutes, but um, but yeah, I mean, there's just not there's not like new ideas, and I mean, I think that that can easily turn into kind of private equity hellscape where you have the worst actors in society just kind of sucking everything for parts, sucking everything dry. That was a mixed metaphor. Uh, but, but I, I think that there is, you know, if, if the Democratic Party is going to sustain itself for the next couple of years, there need to be new ideas. And, and, uh, I think that is, that is coming from, from a kind of younger class of, of leadership that, that is being pushed by, by movements. No, you're right. No, it's funny. I know just last night, I think I was thinking about, it was like, you know, the camp, the arguments against like Medicare for all in the Democratic primary debates were never, oh, the health, the private sector is more dynamic. No one ever said that. It was all that anybody ever came up with was, well, Bernie, that they don't have the votes. It was like, yeah, we all agree with you, I guess, but we don't have the votes. 
And when you compare, like, you know, you go back 30 or 40 years, uh, third way, Anthony Giddens, like big intellectual project, you know, so exciting. <laughs> New public management, all that stuff. And then, you know, you get like the updated Obama era version of Nudge from Cass Lindstein. It's like, oh, you know, just the nudge. That's, that's change. That's it. And now it's just like, oh, we don't have the votes. And you're right. There's like, okay, like even, I mean, even Matt Iglesias was in fact, a, was a Bernie supporter. So like no one, there's literally no one out there who's like, oh no, the private sector really has to be like the dynamic, you know, force. We really have to, you know, the era of big government, so many disappointments. Like it's just the, the only argument now against, um, against the left from the like, quote unquote, center left, or I guess really the center right, let's be honest, is just, oh, we don't have the votes. So yeah, like you're right. That that is certainly consistent with the road to eco-apartheid and eco-fascism, as we often talk about. It's consistent to the road, I think, to eco-socialism. Um, what's not consistent with is the road of like neoliberal hegemony, because that's yeah, like you said, the ultimate final neoliberal Joe Biden is himself an empty vessel and always has been, and that was in fact the entire point: an empty vessel who is has some empathy for people, which is. Not a terrible characteristic to have. Doesn't really have much to do with politics and ideology. But. <laughs> it is good. I mean, better than the opposite, right? It's an irrelevant of like, politicians. <laughs> yeah, you could be like, oh, your your family good. member died. You know, uh, fuck you. He doesn't say that, so that's good. Like, <laughs> wow, the bar is so it's so low. Yeah, and and just to to put a put a finer point on it um yeah i mean i don't i don't want to say like neoliberalism is dead i don't think that's that's necessarily true um but i think its survival will be sort of limping along in this kind of like mangled zombified form uh that that nobody really is 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 all that invested in but i guess that's um a zombie is a bad metaphor because uh it's infectious right i mean a, a zombie you know they are constantly seeking brains and constantly infecting new people and i don't think um you know neoliberalism has a sort of evangelizing spirit that zombies do at, at this point wow that's really great and i can't i'm not enough of a genre um specialist to come up with a replacement for the zombie metaphor but i, I you know you just convinced me kate that that's it <laughs> <laughs> no more zombie neoliberalism metaphors, right? They and are that's the season. <laughs> <laughs> Our enemies aren't even zombies. We are probably could be maybe winning. They're not dinosaurs. Uh, they're not zombies. We're out of metaphors. We're out of metaphors. Well, um, this is great. Um, this is really great, Kate. Um, it's so nice to get a chance to chat and you know. Yeah, go back over the season, the highlights, and lay down some thoughts for for what's ahead. Um, So you've been listening to Hot and Bothered, a climate podcast in the time of coronavirus. We're hosted by Descent Magazine. We're produced by Colin Kinnebra. Um, I am super grateful to everyone who's listened and supported us. But I just want to say right now, like, Colin has just been such an incredible producer um, of of this podcast from the very beginning since we came up with the idea um, in a bar in New York um, many, 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 many years ago. So, um, Colin, thank you uh, so much for all that you're doing and you've done to make this podcast possible. And um, you should check out Colin Kinebra's writing um, all over the internet. He's um, he's doing tons of great reporting from France right now, and we'll be sure to include a couple of links um, in the show notes. Yeah. Thank you, Colin. 
our biggest supporter, who's eagerly complimented by the many people who have who've tuned in this season and who supported us on Patreon. Uh, and we are, yeah, eternally grateful for, for all of you. So, we hope to be back um, very soon. But until then, stay hot. Stay bothered. And let's take care of each other. <laughs> <laughs>